So some years ago, I went to sit on a retreat with Stephen Levine, who most of you may know as a very gifted teacher and spiritual counselor working with people dealing with life-threatening illness. And most of the people who were participating in this retreat were themselves either personally or in their lives with their loved ones dealing with life-threatening illness. And there was one woman in particular, I remember, who was most certainly acutely grief-stricken, having lost her husband of many years, not so very long ago. And I remember her asking Stephen, why me? Why is this happening to me? And to this day, I remember his response, which at the time I was most taken aback by. He didn't miss a beat. He said, why not you? Why not you? And at the time I thought, well, perhaps this is a bit cold and uncaring, but I have come over time to appreciate the tremendous gift that he was giving to this woman who I think actually hurt him. Because, in fact, life isn't fair. If by fair we mean that by playing by the rules we may hope to avoid unpleasant experience. The truth is that for most people, life holds at least an equal measure of pain as it does pleasure. But then again, that is why life, this life, is considered a precious one, because it contains the optimal conditions for waking up, the hell realms containing too much suffering, and the heaven realms being a bit too cushy. So why is it that we speak of this practice as giving rise to happiness? It's certainly not a conventional kind of happiness. And so as we pass over into the new year, where we wish each other Happy New Year, I'd like to say a few words about what kind of wish we may truly extend to one another that could have any significant and abiding meaning. So we've heard a bit about what kind of happiness this is not. It's not the happiness that's based on the accumulation of more pleasant experiences. 
it's not the happiness that has to do with cultivating a state of calm in the mind at the expense of anything else that might be arising. In fact, the Buddha talked about a kind of happiness which is not dependent on any of our circumstances whatsoever, whether inner or outer. A happiness which is unshakable. And so this is the very essence of what the Buddha taught. Unconditional happiness is possible. And of course, he offered a very specific set of guidelines, a prescription, if you will, for attaining this kind of happiness. And that is the prescription to be found in what are known as the Four Noble Truths, which John referred to on our first night. So the first noble truth, there is suffering in the undisciplined mind. The second noble truth is that there are causes of this suffering about which the Buddha was very specific. The causes of suffering in our lives are clinging or grasping onto that which is pleasant and aversion or pushing away of that which is unpleasant. And the undisciplined mind spends most of its time doing just exactly that, grasping and pushing away, and grasping and pushing away. And most of it takes place on automatic pilot. And so the question arises sooner or later, as it has for all of us who are here, might there not be a wiser way to relate to our experience? And of course, there is. There is a wiser way to relate. The one which holds the possibility of actual release from suffering, even in the midst of unpleasant experience. And this is the third noble truth, which might be paraphrased as, unpleasant experience painful experience is inevitable. Suffering in the mind is optional. Suffering in the mind is optional. So it is possible to free the heart and mind from suffering. And in the fourth noble truth, the Buddha lays out the prescription for this release. And a key element of this prescription is paying attention to our experience, just as we have been doing here. So from this perspective, this practice is not the kind of masochistic practice it might otherwise appear to be. But we need to see all this grasping and aversion in all of its horrifying glory if ever we are to free ourselves from being run by it. Because the only way out of it is through it. The only way out of it is through it. Ajahn Chah once asked many of the one of the many young monks who come from the West, and this monk had just arrived at his monastery. 
And he came right up to him and he said, I hope you're not afraid of suffering. And this young person was somewhat taken aback and explained that he had not come to suffer, but rather to learn meditation and to live peacefully in the forest. And Ajahn Chah said to him, there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. True happiness is a state of balance, of equilibrium. So it's not that we become unfeeling, indifferent. Often there is a confusion about this. We continue to experience things as either pleasant or unpleasant. Desire and aversion may very well arise. But what is different is that our actions are not governed merely by the avoidance of pain and the pursuit of pleasure. And so instead we can act from a place of deeper wisdom to do that which is truly skillful, that which is in accord with the Dharma, with the natural way of things, whether or not this happens to be pleasant or unpleasant. And this is why we practice to shed the light of awareness on this cascade of events, which no doubt has become graphically apparent in the last few days. So first there's an awareness of an experience, a pain in the knee, a murderous rage, the taste of a chocolate chip cookie. Remember that? (laughs) (laughs) The embrace of a loved one. And then, within a millisecond, comes to awareness the pleasantness or unpleasantness of that experience. And then immediately, what is it that happens? If it's a pleasant experience, we just don't want it to go away. Grasping arises. And if it's unpleasant or painful, aversion arises. And then what happens is there's an impulse to act, motivated by the desire to hold on to pleasant and to push away unpleasant. And so we reach for another cookie even though we've already had three. (laughs) Or we change our sitting position, or we act out our rage, or what have you. But here's where the real power of the practice comes in. Once we are aware of this chain of events, we have the freedom to begin to uncouple our awareness of pain and pleasure from a reflexive action motivated simply by a desire to be more comfortable in the moment at the expense of whatever long-term price to ourselves or to others or to the planet or what have you. But to do this requires tremendous wakefulness of mind. We need to be awake so that we can see what's actually happening, the total process. And often this can be very horrifying. And as people start to see this, they get quiet and they develop some strong concentration, they actually think that they're getting worse. 
they actually think their practice is getting worse. But really what's going on is what has been there all along is simply being seen for the first time. Seeing the waterfall, as it's called traditionally, the unceasing mental cascade. And it is one of the first great insights in practice. Because it's only when you're really able to see what's going on that we have the possibility not to be caught in it. And every moment that we do this, that we see this process of grasping or pushing away without feeding it and without repressing it, every moment in which we are merely mindful is a moment in which we are free. Free from this incessant round of pushing away and pulling toward and pushing away and pulling toward. And this is freedom. Every moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. And complete freedom is nothing more than a continuous abiding in this state of wakefulness. And there aren't so very many beings walking around who are doing that. What all the rest of us have is a moment, a moment of wakefulness here, a moment of wakefulness there. But it's not to say that these moments are qualitatively different from the state of complete freedom. They're just more intermittent. And in between these moments is when we do all the damage. So every moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. The path which leads to this kind of happiness takes us in exactly the opposite direction from the direction in which the prevailing culture is moving, in case you haven't noticed. The direction of the prevailing culture is to try to control, to somehow subdue or to tame any forces which could potentially cause us to suffer. So, if we're in control of our health, our material circumstances, whom we associate with, then we will be happy. And many of us have been raised with the expectation that we could do all of this. But, None of these things, in and of themselves, even if we could keep it all together, leads to lasting happiness. So this is not a static or conventional happiness that we're speaking of here. And the pursuit of this kind of happiness is not an endeavor which is supported by the dominant culture. The Buddha himself likened it to the path of swimming upstream. This happiness arises out of a very dynamic state of being. So it's not dependent on things staying a certain way, which is, of course, wise in view of the fact that they don't. You might well call it a traveler's equilibrium. So it's not the control of trying to make something happen or not happen, but rather 
the ability to stay present, open, and balanced through all the experiences and realms of life. A traveler's equilibrium. And it's not some kind of abstract spirituality that was true in India 2,500 years ago. It's also true today as we move into the year 2001. It bears repeating. Technological advances notwithstanding, our lives are still 99.99% outside of our control. We must become experts at seeing our attachments and aversions and how we can defeat ourselves in our efforts to be happy by trying to micromanage our experience. It's a mistake to think that we are someday going to get it all together, keep it together, and just kick back and be happy. Don't be wishing that for each other in the new year. (laughs) It's a prescription for suffering. Just when you think you've got it made, what happens? Your company downsizes and you get a pink slip. Or your child falls out of a tree. Or your house gets broken into. Your marriage falls apart. Your mother is diagnosed with cancer. There is no solid ground on which to kick back. To realize this deeply and to live our lives in accord with this knowledge is to live with what the Zen teacher Alan Watts called the wisdom of insecurity. The wisdom of insecurity. And as we seek to increase happiness in our lives, it's also important not to be too linear in our conception of where happiness lies. Too often we come to practice and to our lives with a kind of project mentality. Let's see, on this retreat I'm going to work on my relationship with my partner, my unfinished business with my dead father, my career, my temper, and if I'm a really good yogi and I work hard on all of this stuff, then I will leave the retreat happy. (laughs) Or at least happier than when I arrived. But the idea is not that we keep working away at ourselves until there is no more aversion in the mind, no more unwholesome qualities, no more stiffness in the body, no more anger, no more boredom or restlessness. And that when we finally succeed in doing that, that then we'll be happy. Too often our conditioning is that if there is unpleasantness in our lives, it is our responsibility to fix it. And this conditioning can infuse practice as well. well, It's the perfectionist pitfall. And it goes something like this. I will only be happy someday when everything is perfect in my world. 
Or, my happiness is dependent on the content being perfect. And when we look carefully, we see that this fix-it mentality is usually based on fear. Unless we really get busy fixing things, we're going to be overwhelmed by the power of the imperfect. But the happiness of the Buddha is actually much simpler. It is the happiness that comes from bringing to every moment of our experience a quality of presence which is so complete that we feel no separation between ourselves and the sound of the bell. It is the happiness that comes of being alone and not feeling that there is anything missing. It's the happiness we can find in a life that is connected. The happiness that is revealed to us in every moment that we let go of our judgments and of our preconceived ideas about how things are supposed to go. The happiness in which we can open our hearts and minds so that we can feel deeply touched by the simplest of experiences being present to the delight and the joy and the love of just being here. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, happiness is available. Please help yourself. (laughs) It's nothing we have to work for and struggle for. It's available. It's present for us. It is, in fact, a state of love. Because what is love other than a state of complete and total unconditional presence? Presence which can light up the world. The social commentator and deep ecologist Hazel Henderson writes, When all remember they are lovers, then all places are sacred once again. Sacredness is everywhere. When all remember they are lovers, then all places are sacred once again. Sacredness is everywhere. So this is our practice. And it need not be so terribly complicated a moment of chopping vegetables, a moment of eating, a moment of sadness, a moment of judging, of rage, of dread, and then a moment of rapture and chopping again and hearing the wind in the trees. And so goes the flow of our lives, moment by moment, day by day, year by year. So I'd like to close with these words from the Dhammapada, the words of the Buddha. Wakefulness is the way to life. The fool sleeps as if he were already dead. 
but the Master is awake, and he lives forever. He watches. He is clear. How happy he is, for he sees that wakefulness is life. How happy he is following the path of the awakened. With great perseverance, he meditates, seeking freedom and happiness. So my wish for you is for many, many unconventionally, unconditionally happy moments in the new year. So what I'd like to talk about a little bit this evening for a brief period of time is the motivation that lies beneath our practice. As Gil and Wendy have been talking, a lot of the motivation that underlay the Buddha's teachings was to free all beings from suffering. And that tradition has been passed on for many generations of the teaching of the Dharma. Is that loud enough? That all beings be free from suffering. That the motivation for our practice isn't just for ourselves, but that it's we continue to practice until all beings are free. So thus we're not practicing to gain something, but more we're practicing to lose something to lose the three poisons or the three defilements, greed, hatred, delusion. And so it isn't for some experience that kind of um, reinforces our sense of self, but more for a loss of reactivity, for a freeing of the mind that opens us into interconnection. So rather than have our motivation be to get more, to get more experiences, more peace, be a better person, all the things that Wendy mentioned, we're hoping that we'll leave the retreat carrying less, we'll be lighter. So that our two motivations are to lose these three poisons, if you want, to lessen the power of greed, hatred, and delusion. And having done that, then to work for the benefit of all beings. So we're fully engaged in the world. All beings can become free as a result of our practice. And the Buddha described very clearly 
the law of cause and effect, how our actions of body, speech and mind have consequences. And we don't have to look very far to see this. The small moments of our day-to-day life show us this, as well as just looking around the planet and seeing what's happened to the earth and continues to happen to the earth. And the Buddha clarified it even further by showing that what most completely determines the results of our actions is the underlying motivation. Is the motivation behind them greed or aversion? Or is it love? When our motivations are pure or skillful, then it leads to happiness in ourselves and others. If our motivations are impure or unskillful, then it leads to suffering. And a large part of the Buddha's teachings were to do with sila, or morality, as well as with meditation and, um, and wisdom. And a lot of emphasis was put on how we live our lives. That's why we practice the precepts. And we come to three, see through our practice the importance of being willing to investigate the motivation in our hearts. And we pay attention to them, to understand them and see them clearly, not to judge them. It's not about having commandments. It's about having an open heart and compassion for the ways that we aren't skillful. It isn't always easy. We don't look, like to look at what's underneath our motivation sometimes, to see the greed or whatever. But often there is a moment of purity if we really look. When I'm writing a Dharma talk, I start off by what I really want is for people to understand the Dharma, to be liberated, to be free. But then as I continue to write, in creeps wanting to write a good Dharma talk, to be entertaining, um, to be seen, all those things. And I can react to that and have aversion. Or maybe this fear that maybe I won't remember what I'm going to say. All those things come in and murky the um, pure motivation. And what helps by seeing those is that when we see them, they start to dissolve. And we can reconnect with that pure motivation that we began with. And we can contact our own Buddha nature. That awakened mind that each of us has. Because the Buddha saw that the mind is naturally radiant and pure and that these defilements, as we call them, are just visitors. They arise out of conditions. They're not inherent to our being. So it doesn't mean that we need to see unskillful actions or impure motivation with judgment. It doesn't mean that we identify with it and feel we're bad people because our motivation is a little bit muddy. So just to look at them is really helpful. When you're doing walking meditation and someone whose opinion you value walks by and you find yourself walking particularly mindfully, to, to notice, oh, wanting to be seen, wanting to look good. Or if you're eating at a table full of people and you're being particularly slowly mindful, is this to experience the truth? Or is it to look good? 
And it's okay. It's just seeing it that brings it into awareness. Because in a moment of seeing, it's possible to release it. And then there's space for us to contact the love and compassion that's underneath. Ajahn Sumedho said, Our practice is not to follow the heart, but to train it. We all have very different motivations to practice, and they change over time. And whatever our motivation for practice is, it can be held in the aspiration that it be for the benefit of all beings. And when we do that, it changes the way we practice. It opens it and it loosens the contractions that we have around self, me, mine. It opens us to experiencing the possibility of interconnectedness. So we move from isolation to wholeness. And it's very healing, healing for us, those around us, and for the planet. And we can do it in a very simple way. We can begin each practice period with an aspiration that our work is for the benefit of all beings. May my practice be that all be liberated. And we can make a dedication at the end of the day, a dedication of merit, that the goodness that's coming from our practice be for all beings. And at any time during the retreat, if we're sleepy or bored or frustrated or whatever, We can reconnect with the motivation that brought us here. And from our pure motivation, we can make intentions. Intention is not to be confused with will, that wanting or grasping. Our intentions create the world. It's very powerful. How we live, what we do, is created a lot by our intentions, by the patterns of our mind. And when they come from pure motivation, they're of great benefit. So if we continue to explore our motivation, it can also purify our intention. We can make the intention to awaken again and again. May I be present and free in this moment. May I remember who I am. May I be present in my life. And the power of our intention grows as we practice and as our concentration deepens. We can make intention to be present with kindness. And we can reconnect with that intention whenever we're having a time of being really hard on ourselves. Just to be here with interest and with gentleness, whatever is happening. Whether it's judging or praising or love or joy, Can I look with curiosity? And we can make an intention for every step, every moment to be mindful and be aware of rushing and leaning into the next moment. And we can make an intention and let go of it. When we let go, when we just make it and let go of it, it's like sowing seeds. There's no expectation or agenda or attachment to it. We let go of it before it becomes will, before it becomes grasping. So at this time of year, which is a time of letting go 
and new beginnings, very often we make resolutions or intentions. And because this is a time of letting go, I'd like to read this poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called Adios. Adios. It is a good word rolling off the tongue, no matter what language you were born with. Use it. Learn where it begins, the small alphabet of departure, how long it takes to think of it, Then say it, then be heard. Marry it more than any golden ring. It shines, it shines. Wear it on every finger till your hands dance, touching everything easily, letting everything easily go. Strap it to your back like wings or a kite tail, the stream of air behind a jet. If you are known for anything, Let it be the way you rise out of sight when your work is finished. Think of things that linger, leaves, cartons, napkins, the damp smell of mold. Think of things that disappear. Think of what you love best, what brings tears into your eyes. Something that said adios to you before you knew what it meant or how long it was for. Explain little, the word explains itself. Later, perhaps, lessons following lessons, like silence following sound. So tonight, at this time of our retreat, I'd like you to invite you um, to bring into awareness something that you're ready to let go of, perhaps, say goodbye to, release, or have transformed in some way. To bring that into awareness without thought or thinking, but just allow it to come as you sit or walk for the next little while. And perhaps it might be some intention to further your spiritual path. Not thinking about it, just letting it come. And outside there are some pieces of paper and pens. And if you want, you can write this down, whatever it is that you have the intention to release or to let go of or to have transformed. And later this evening when we come back here, we'll have a brief ceremony where you'll have a chance to place your paper into a fire, actually a barbecue, (laughs) that we'll have outside. (laughs) So it'll be like that action of sowing seeds, allowing this to arise and really sing it, saying adios to whatever it is, making some intention and letting go without any agenda.
And so in a few minutes you'll be going out of the hall to collect your paper if you want to take part in this. And I'd like to close with this blessing chant. Just as water flowing in the streams and rivers fills the ocean, thus may all your moments of goodness touch and benefit all beings, those here now and those gone before. May all your wishes be soon fulfilled as completely as the moon on a full moon night, as successfully as from the wish-fulfilling gem. May all dangers be averted. May all disease leave you. May no obstacles come across your way, and may you enjoy happiness and long life. May those who are always respectful honoring the way of the elders, prosper in the four blessings of old age, beauty, happiness, and strength. It's time for walking meditation, and if the pencils and paper are outside, we don't have enough for pencils for everyone, so if you would return yours after you've used it, that would be helpful. Also, um, the, this evening's schedule is a little bit different, obviously, and uh, it's on the board, the schedule for um, sitting, walking, a snack in the dining room at 9.15 and some more sitting and walking and some more sitting and walking and then <laughs> we'll do it again. And, and um, But because the evening is uh, kind of special, I was just reminded by one of the cooks that if you have a, a, a work meditation job, as usual after the Dharma talk, if you can be sure to go down and, and, uh, and do that and that your work meditation doesn't get lost in these... Work, sitting, and walking. There's one other little yeah. piece. Um, if you have a work meditation at 9.30, to do it at 10.30 or at 9.45 at the end of the... There's a couple who have work meditation at 9.30. If you have a work meditation at 9.30 this evening, can you come up here and talk to Beth?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.